0: Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans Watching the footy Liam Ryan saying kick it my way, I want to jump over the pack and here he comes This is Buddy Franklin This is the greatest shot Hamble off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee there good. Gee there sharp. Oh who else? McDonald! G <laughs> there! From inside the centre square! Boys get the goal! Boys get the goal! From inside the centre. time of day to you, everyone. This is Americans Watching the funny. This is part two of our 2023 season preview, also known as episode 77. My name's Ethan Castle. I am Benjamin Castle. Yes, this is the fifth episode of our second season already. And it's kind of fitting that we're recording right now after Australia's 8-7 win over South Korea, the World Baseball Classic. Did I see something about a player getting tagged out while pipping a double? I was not watching that part of the game but nonetheless great win let's consider that this is not as strong as some of the past australian teams i mean you look at the roster and there's like two guys that have played in major league baseball in the last decade for more than like a couple games to the point that i remember them those being aaron whitefield who i believe is a brisbane lions fan and warwick southald who let's see Judging from his Twitter history, I believe he's a Dockers fan. Seen multiple old tweets of his with hashtag Purple Army at the end. Games they played in old finals campaigns. Aha. Being a Dockers supporter is an absolute roller coaster, he said, in August of 2019. I can understand that one. All right. I think that would kind of count as confirmation then. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, and he's also got some, uh, he's like- he seems to be a legit footy fan. He was talking with the uh Daily Traders. He's really into it. Alright. I am officially more of a Warwick Soppold fan now, and I hope one day we can have a lot as a guest. Between him and Travis Blackley, we gotta start working our baseball connections. Especially if Essendon shits down their leg again this year. But we already talked about Essendon last time along with five other teams. We'll do six more in this episode and six in the next. So, Warwick, if you're listening, there's a 50% chance we'll be talking about the Dockers. Yeah, they haven't shown up yet. And as we get started here, wouldn't you know it? It's not the Dockers. It's their neighbors. Or co-tenants, I guess. All right. Well, Benjamin, you are the Resident Eagles supporter and now member. Exactly. Yeah, don't think your first year as an Eagles member is going to go... Quite as well as my first year as a Cats member, but uh, take it away. I mean, it's pretty much impossible. The full rebuild has really yet to begin. I'm glad that they've drafted the way they have because they really focused on local West Australian talent at the top of things between Reuben Ginby and Elijah Hewitt. And especially for a non-Victorian team, that's really necessary when you're rebuilding to prioritize the local talent because they're not gonna, they're more likely to stick around and not leave you for a contender when things are going rough. They're going to want to more likely see it through closer to home. And just going by the sheer numbers and population, you're more likely to benefit from that than South Australia, just considering you've got not quite 50% more people, but some of the 30 to 40% range without actually crunching the numbers here. So I'm just comparing Western Australia to South Australia as footy states because it would be hard to compare with like New South Wales and Queensland. Yeah, I mean, those places have the academies for a reason, and it's even tougher to find that sort of talent in rugby country and props to Lions and Swans for doing what they have been able to do with retaining some of that local talent. Speaking of Ginby, I like what I saw from him against Adelaide in their second preseason match. Only had 17 touches, but seven clearances from them. And I think that presence at the start of plays all across the ground means that he's a real contender for round one. I hope he gets in. I want to see the young guys early and often this year. And like I've said with other rebuilding teams like Hawthorne in particular, I want to see the young guys tried out in different spots throughout the year. And then maybe toward the end of the season, Adam Simpson will really zone in on the couple different spots for players that. Might work out better than others. You know, where players lie within that younger group, certain groups of players have better chemistry. And there are definitely some players with some versatility that are on the list. My sleeper is one of them, and I'll get to them in a bit. But we saw, for example, Jermaine Jones get a bit more life once he was moved back. Rhett Bazo can flex it between a couple positions. And Bazo's had a rough time this summer losing his mother in the boating accident. So hopefully he'll be able to come back into things soon. And we might really be seeing some of those younger guys right away, though, because it took long enough, but the injury bug has definitely started to hit. I'm listing how many different players in the report right now. Uh, eight, I believe. So Jack Petrocelli and Harry Barnett picked 23 from this past draft. Might be ready for round one. They've both got ankle injuries as does Jack Darling. We don't know about his timeline. The Eagles have just been unclear in general as to who's ready and who isn't. Maybe it's because they have a little bit more time to figure out things before next weekend, or maybe it's just because they're holding their cards close to their chest. But Darling, Luke Edwards has a quad injury. Nick Natanui with an Achilles tendon problem again. It's been a recurring thing for him. Luke Shuey, we don't exactly know what it is, but just Luke Shuey and 2 Williams is Bailey with the hamstring, so that means that Callum Jameson is probably going to be the first-rate ruck at this point, point. and I don't know, maybe Josh Rotham will have time in that second spot if we expect Nick Knapp to be out as well, Bailey Williams as well as Jack Williams, who had probably the most freakish injury of summer training with the ruptured spleen. Again, we haven't received reports on who's officially out for round one. I'm happy that Darling has had a more complete summer program though because it was by his choice that he didn't last year. Yeah, from my outsider, not only outsider, but probably watched less of the Eagles than any other team last year perspective. Even more even more than the Giants? Yeah, considering the way we split up games. Yeah, I mean we always prioritized watching our own teams when there were overlaps. Yeah. So the name obviously that stands out to me out of this then is Nath Nui. Because he's super fun to watch. Still very effective in the Pure Ruck contest itself. You know, his importance outside of those contests has further and further diminished, sadly. And I'm not sure how much time he has left in him. I just want to see him go up against Sam Draper. Which, spoiler alert, to something we'll talk about later. There will be potential for that to happen twice. The very little Eagles content I have taken in, it does seem like... Josh Rotham seems to be viewed pretty favorably within the club right now, so I would think he's one of those guys where even if injuries don't open up opportunities for him, there are going to be opportunities at some point because he's going to force his way in. And at only 25, he's got plenty of time to make a good impression again. I see a lot of people thinking that the Eagles can make this hugely upward this year, and maybe it's because I've watched them so much that I've begun to really scrutinize them, but... One, I'm not sure if Adam Simpson has it in him to be able to take this group that far. And secondly, I think the younger side of the list needs another year or two to develop before they can really make that next step. That's why I'm thinking this year really needs to be a trial run for a lot of different players in different spots. I mean, who on that younger side of the list do you really see as, you know, possible cornerstones in a contending window? I think both of our sleepers qualify, even though yours isn't really much of a sleeper. Yeah, I'm calling Jai Coley my sleeper because A, he has dreads, and B, there just isn't much else on this list that really jumps out to me. I mean, I wouldn't count Jaden Hunt. I think he's one of the more well-established guys. He is certainly a nice pickup that'll help the defense. I mean, we saw what Hunt could provide late last season for Melbourne in being kind of a slingshot player. I remember his importance, particularly in their round 22 comeback against Carlton. Oh yeah, Carlton. Yeah, they were fun. They're still catching strays. It's going to take a lot for them to not catch strays. I think Callum Jameson can grow into being a really important player. At just 22, I'm already liking some of the size that I'm seeing from him. And then also, you do have Campbell Chesser and Oscar Allen in the mix for this year, and they weren't last year. Chesser going to make his AFL debut, potentially round one. We saw him in preseason action, and... Allen will definitely be a breath of fresh air at the key forward spots and maybe some Ruck Moonlighting now that Josh Kennedy has retired. He's going to be taking up a really important spot really quickly, and I think you could see him, if he stays healthy, being pretty high in the Coleman race just because he's going to be such a common target. If I had to pick a team for the Wooden Spoon, this would be the one, although I'd say that with some level of hesitation. I don't see them being like, Obviously, that much worse than perhaps North, maybe Hawthorne, maybe St. Kilda. But I think if I had to pick, this would be the one. But at the same time, I'm going to admit, I don't know a ton about this team compared to the rest of the league and compared to me. Yeah. And let's consider, for example, you watched a lot of Geelong last year because they had a lot of primetime games and they were really good. I did not watch much of the Eagles because they didn't have a lot of primetime games. And when I did have a chance to watch them, they were usually getting their asses kicked. I know, you said during our premiere for our our wish list, you want the Eagles to give you reason to watch the second half. Yeah, so maybe I just don't know much about them, and maybe there's more skill and talent there than meets the uninformed eye, because compared to the other 17 teams, this is probably the team that I enter the season knowing the least about, which is funny, because when we first started watching Footy. Watching these guys, it was an event because you knew you got to watch Nathaniel and Ryan do crazy shit. Yeah, that, that first season when they lost in a one point elimination final to Collingwood, the premiership core was still largely healthy and a lot of them were still close to the skill level that they had two years prior. Also worth mentioning, of course, that Dom Sheed is looking to be back in action at a much higher level of fitness compared to last year when he hardly saw the oval. So A whole bunch of players who didn't really figure in much last year, who will have more sizable roles this year. I still see them as a bottom third team. I might not see a bottom three. I can see them in the 13th through 15th range. And certainly their schedule is favorable for that because they've got double-ups with Adelaide, Carlton, Essendon, Frio, of course, North, and Richmond. So only one top six team from last year and only two finalists? Yeah, this is... About as friendly as it gets schedule-wise. And, I mean, other than, I guess, North, maybe? North and maybe Essendon by some metrics, if you're looking at percent. Well, North is the only team that only faces one finalist for last year twice. Seven teams face two finalists twice. So I would say if you had to pick the easiest schedule, it would be North. But the Eagles are not far off. A lot of that really depends on your perception of, I think, Adelaide and Carlton. And I guess when you get over to previewing North, your perception of Gold Coast, because as you probably know, we have a pretty poor perception of St. Kilda. If everything hits for the Eagles this year, how many games do you see them possibly winning? I mean, if I see them, you know, maxing out around 13th in a 23 game schedule, I could see them getting to seven eight wins but that does seem like a best case scenario in which you know they're winning close games and things like that looking at their schedule just for a particularly tough stretch rounds three through eight or something to look at you got the frio hosted western derby hosting melbourne two straight weeks in south australia because in the Gather round. they played geelong and then port in round six then they got the blues at home before going back to Victoria to face Richmond. And frankly, even round nine, depending on how you feel about the Suns, and you know, I'm relatively high on them. I'm pretty bullish on them as well. It would be cool to see the Suns win in Perth against an actual Eagles team instead of like a third of them. Yeah, that 30-point win to open last year against whatever that skeleton crew was, and that wasn't even the worst of the skeleton crew. There aren't any other, like... Murderer's Row stretches, although I'd say round 17 through 19 at Brisbane, home against Richmond, at Carlton is not great. And then the home leg of the Western Derby round 22 and at the Bulldogs round 23. Not optimal, but if you could get somehow through round eight at like three and five, I'd call that a success. If you get through it at two and six, even I'd say, all right, fine. I mean, I think those two wins would probably have to come in the first two games then. They've got to win one of the first two games, considering what the schedule looks like after that. No disrespect to North and GWS, but it's not the same level of competition they're going to be facing. If you lose both of those, you could be looking at 0-8, 0-9, and by that point, does Adam Simpson's head come up to the chopping block? Well, over these couple of years, coaching changes have not made sense to us compared to when the axe falls in American sports. So I'm not even going to begin to try to guess on those. And honestly, I'm thinking that because he's a friendship coach, it'll probably end up being his call, even though at some point the upper brass of the club shouldn't end up having a say. My sleeper, by the way, since we hadn't gotten to it, it's hard for me to wrap my head around this guy being a sleeper, but when he isn't regularly talked about as being in the best 23, yeah, Brady Hoff is a bit of a sleeper. He's the younger Eagle that I enjoyed watching the most last year. Started off at halfback, worked his way more toward kind of a more outside mid and wing role as the year went on. And I noted a lot that he had some pretty frequent score starting ball use. If you're looking at, you know, score involvements that are coming from players in the back half, Hoff tended to rank pretty high and he goes along with that theme of young West Australian talent, and he's just 20. And so hopefully he gets into that best 23 early on and really stays there because I think he could be a stable presence there for a really long time. If you have Hoff and Jones together in that half-back and wing spot, you'll have good movement. Jones's defensive abilities I still question. I'm more solid about Hoff in that regard. Oh, yeah. Tom Barris deserved to be an All-Australian. He was awesome last year. He was really the only defender that you look at and would have said, yeah, he would start on any team. From, you know, the very bottom teams, him and Sam Taylor, who was an All-Australian. The Eagles have just one alternate site game this year, that being round 10 in Launceston when they take on the Hawks. And, of course, as is tradition, they do not get to play the Lions at home. They still have not in the history of Optus Stadium. Six years. There is a conspiracy at the AFL house. As Benjamin spins the wheelie, and I also want to mention that beating this South Korea team, this is a good team, like for those couple weeks of watching the KBO when it was the best baseball on a couple years ago, with the um, with the great song for ESPN broadcaster Carl Ravitch, or sorry, Caravici. Like the guys who were batting eighth and ninth in that Korean lineup are legitimately good hitters who would be solid major league players. And then Australia held them off is pretty legit. Too bad Ku Dae Sung isn't playing anymore. He was pretty good. Next up, from one kind of West to another, a lot of people think the Bulldogs could rise into a top four spot this year despite having lost a key part of their midfield in Josh Dunkley. Maybe are people thinking it's going to be, you know, a bit less crowded there, and so some players will have more of a chance to shine in a more natural role. Perhaps we'll see more midfield time again for Marcus Bonapeli, who spent a lot of time at full forward last year. We saw a new look at full forward for sure in preseason action for the Dogs, with a mix of four players being used to key forward, and all of whom really make sense in that spot. Aaron Naughton, Jamara Eubelhagen, Sam Darcy, and the newly acquired Rory Lobb. I'm not sure if people thought about this team as having the riches they did at forward, but it's very visible now, especially with how Darcy came along in his few games at the end of the year, and how Jamara really blossomed, especially with that five-goal performance he put on against the D's at Marvel. That was his arrival game for sure. I would love to know why anyone thinks this could be a top four team when they haven't been a top four team since there were only 16 teams in the league. Like, you just look at their form and that's... It's not what they do. Luke Beveridge has never coached a top four team. He's coached two grand finalists and a premiership team, but no top four team. And look, I think the Bulldogs do still have a lot of talent even after losing Dunkley, but I don't see anything that tells me that they're going to be top four. I think they could be... You think they could be maybe around five or six again? I think that's possible. I mean, one thing that definitely helps is the return of Liam Jones because he was such a valuable intercept defender, perhaps the best in the league if you look at 2020 and 21 before taking last year off. He's back where he started his career and doesn't look like he's lost a step at all. And last year, I was really questioning their fullback ranks and really who would be the guy to take on a lot of those bigger targets one-on-one because I wasn't seeing enough out of Alex Keith or Ryan Tika Masala Gardner. And that's former cricketer Alex Keith to you. Yes, yes, of course. And also, we won't be seeing Gardner at the start of the season anyway. He's got an elbow injury. It Looks like this team is a pretty lengthy injury list. Benjamin, why don't you clue us into that a bit more? So Gardner, along with Rourke Smith, who has a foot injury, have been ruled out for round one, but we don't know their timeline beyond that. Smith was one of the depth contributors that we did notice a couple times last year, and we've talked so much about this list being top-heavy and really reliant on contributions from the known names. A whole bunch of players are questionable, or their status hasn't been confirmed yet. There's Dominic Bedendo with a leg injury, Jed Buslinger has a shoulder problem. Tim O'Brien has a hamstring injury. Those three are unlikely. And then seems like Cody Waitman is more toward likely than questionable at this point. Still don't know about Jason Johannesson and his calf. Although admittedly, I think he's on the back end of things at this point and not sure if he'd be cracking the 23 anymore. They suffered three injuries to their potential best 23. I'd say two definitely of their best 23 against North in their second preseason outing. Taylor had a neck injury, left that game with a brace on. Ed Richards, who we liked a lot of last year, injured his quad, and then Hayden Crozier dislocated his finger. Richards was a guy who I thought felt a little bit out of place taking on some of the biggest key targets last year. So that's where I think Jones and his experience could really help in that regard. Maybe he could be a bit of a mentor back there. But the biggest injury... And the one that isn't, you know, just a round one question is Latham Vandermeer. Broken foot is taking him out for two months. So we don't really know what their round one list is going to look like and maybe the rest of this month of March as well. And it's going to be a pretty tough month schedule-wise. Getting into April, certainly so. Five of their first six games are really tough. The other is St. Kilda, but you open with the Ds. Then after you get the Saints, you host the Lions. Cool. You have the Tigers at the G. Then you're at Port Adelaide during the gather round. You're at Frio. And then finally things cool off a little bit with the Hawks and then playing the Giants in Canberra. The other really tough stretch schedule, I think, around 16 to 18 coming out of the bye. I was going to say that's nasty, even though those first two are in Victoria hosting Frio and Collingwood. But then you got to go to Sydney to play the Swans. You know, the thing with this team where we've talked again and again about the lack of depth to the point where you can remember specific good games from depth contributors last year. Rourke Smith round 23 is one that I was thinking of, which is why I mentioned him in that spot. And then my sleeper had one as well against Hawthorne. Hint, hint. Yeah, both of them were actually against Hawthorne. And Riley Garcia had that one good game against Melbourne. Yeah, along with Jamara. I mean, those were the two guys that really got them over the line at that one in Another fabulous game in probably the best single round of a home and away season that we have seen in our three years watching the footy. People ought to be talking about that round decades from now. The thing is, when you look at Geelong and what they did last season, and you look at having depth contributors like Jed Buse, Jake Kulajashny, having Zap Guthrie go from a minus to a positive, everybody really having a real niche that into which they fit in that lineup, and a coach who knew where to move pieces around when necessary. And it's not just having a niche, it's just having six or seven good defenders, six or seven good forwards, instead of two or three amazing ones. You gotta have, I mean, I could see the Bulldogs having, you know, the, the forward and midfield depth that's required, but once you get into the back half, it's much shakier. And on the topic of injuries, what happens when someone gets hurt? I don't see a lot of great next man up options unless you count Buku Kamis as part of that group. I think he's going to end up being a factor as a sub because he can fit into multiple spots. And I mean, who knows how functional Josh Bruce is going to be back in defense, which just seems like a weird move given what we saw out of him at his best a couple years back and also his ACL injury. Yeah, I thought it would have made more sense, you know, if you're gonna move someone, wouldn't Aaron Naughton have made more sense? I mean, Naughton will probably do some moonlighting as a center half back this year with the rotation of key forwards that they'll have. They'll probably have Naughton and Sam Darcy both slide back there when needed. And Sam Darcy, I know, is your pick for the rising star. Yeah, it seems like a relatively safe pick rather than someone who was just drafted this past year. Intend my pick. And he looked fully ready late last season when he got on board. He's the, the sort of guy, though, that they're going to be relying on him a lot. And that's a lot to ask of such a young and inexperienced player at this level. I mean, he certainly has a sky-high ceiling, but they're going to be asking a lot of him right away. A whole lot of options for sleepers for the Bulldogs, given what we said about their strength at the top of the list. And they had a few guys who debuted last year, who I could definitely see as falling among that sleeper rank, and I believe yours debuted last year as well. Yeah, and I picked him because you took mine, so why don't you go first? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I went with a father-son pick, Riley West. He had a three-goal game against Hawthorne last year in round 15. That game was in Melbourne, and he was everywhere in the four two-thirds. I think he's going to have a more significant role now that Josh Dunkley has left. He honestly ought to be a known commodity, and I think he would in a lot of other lists, but I'm not sure if he is given who's in front of him in the midfield ranks of the Bulldogs between Marcus Batapelli, Bailey Smith when he isn't doing coke, Jack McRae, who was one of the most sound users of the ball in the entire league. He wasn't in the preseason game against North until Ed Richards exited though, but I got to think he's in the best 23 at this point. And I hope so, because I'm of the opinion that he deserves that spot. I remember liking him kind of linking between the midfield and forward groups. You know, that's definitely part of Josh Dunkley's skill set as well. So that's where I think he can really fill in. In my pit, just kind of by default, because I didn't see too many others I liked. Even though he played in all of two games was Dominic Bedando. And you have already pronounced his name better than Brian Taylor ever did. He played in losses against the Lions and Swans, both on the road. Kicked one goal. Remember that Lions game, they just got absolutely shitted on. And that is the proper verb tense, by the way. But um, Yeah, that was back in round 16. That was a 41-point contest that was just a Lions breakaway in the second half. He seems like the sort of guy who, you know, he was a late round draft pick. He could be the sort of depth contributor they need. You know, you're not asking him to be a superstar. You're just asking him be a quality player that we can put in the lineup regularly. And I think he's got the capabilities to do that. So Ethan, what are you thinking about the Bulldogs double ups? Because based on, you know, the metrics that, I've used to judge them dividing the teams into top, middle, and bottom six finalists and then points and percentage. It could be a pretty mixed bag between particularly tough and going toward middle of the pack. Well, they finished eighth on the ladder, and if you averaged out their schedule, I would probably say it's like the sixth or seventh toughest. If you assign points based on their finish on the ladder after finals... would be the ninth toughest if you go by percentage it's second and if you go by points fifth those double ups by the way frio geelong gws hawthorne port adelaide richmond so i see two wooden spoon contenders and four finals contenders. four legit finals contenders including three that made finals last year and at least two that i can really see as top four and you know a couple tough trips in there as well this is not the toughest schedule. I think it's probably best that they get some of those tough games out of the way early before teams have really found a groove. But then again, considering the injuries they're dealing with, they're going to be, you know, I would probably, if I was setting lines on each of their first six games right now, I would have them as the underdog in five of them. Now, I'm not saying they're going to go one and five. They could clean up quite nicely here. and if Heck, if they come out of the first six games at 3-3, and I'll actually probably be decently optimistic about their futures. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, I mean, as you said, rounds three through six are the toughest four-round bunch they have. Don't lose to the Saints. They really can't afford that with the way the rest of the schedule stacks up early on. Okay, and how much will they lose to the Saints by? A lot would have to go wrong. To, lose to them, I really think. But, you know, early season games are weird, like we've said. You know, Saints did start pretty well last year, so anything's possible. It's just the more I look at that early schedule and their injury situation, the more I think this could be a team that could be in serious danger of missing finals entirely. I do trend more toward them missing finals than I do seeing them as a top four team. But them being up for elimination in week one finals makes a lot more sense to me than either of those other outcomes, because, again, it's what the Bulldogs do. The Bulldogs had a bunch of alternate sites this year. You'll be able to see them in a whole lot of different venues. Obviously, they have their games at Ballarat, their pair of games there. They've got the Crows again, Round 10, a chance for redemption from the high wind one-point loss last year that... For a while, it looked like it was going to keep them out of finals until Carlton kept themselves out of finals. And then they go back there in round 20 to face the Giants. Both the Bulldogs' meetings against the Giants this year are at alternate sites because they go to Manuka Oval in round eight. The week after that first game they have in the Central Highlands, they go to Darwin to play the Suns in round eleven, and the Suns showed out there last year in both their games there. So watch out for that one. As I mean, I don't think it's even a trap game anymore with how highly we think of the Suns. I mean, there's always a chance the Suns lull you back into a false sense of security where there are a couple of games where they just don't play defense. Fair enough. And the Bulldogs also go to Wanstead in round twenty-two like they did in round 23 last year, it'll be Hawthorne's final game out in Tasmania for the season. One more team before we have our break, and we're going to a team that is in full rebuild mode now. There could be a couple of them, so why don't you just uh, tell me who that team is? This is Hawthorne. All right. You know, I assume you thought the other could have been maybe the Giants. Reasonable, but, I mean, we've been talking so much about Liking that the Hawks have bought into things as much as they have. And obviously changes at the top this off season A new president in Andy Gowers in the playing group. New captain in James Sicily. And they've jettisoned nearly all of their older pieces aside from Luke Bruce and Chad Wingard. Bruce is the only current 830 plus player on the list. And he'll be joined by Wingard later in the year. As I've said before, I won't get into it in tremendous detail because I've talked about it pretty extensively. They looked at their situation and decided, you know what? Instead of just being you know, a fringe finals team that could maybe sneak in as 8th, let's pull back for a bit, really gear up with this core, and then go after actually winning a flag or even multiple flags a couple more years down the road which is tough to have the awareness to do after having, I thought, a pretty encouraging season when you consider everything. And I really enjoyed the way Sam Mitchell coached, but I think, ultimately, this is the right move. As do I. If you looked at the older players on the list who are still contributing, they got trade returns for them while they still could, while they still had a few more years of service to give. Tom Mitchell being traded off to Collingwood as part of a three-team deal that involved the Cats, Jack Gunston going to the Brisbane Lions, and they're just really going to give the younger pieces a real go at things. They extended Ned Reeves, who we both think is going to be a really central figure for years to come on this list between what we've seen from him in ruck and half-forward work. That tall half-forward role for him looked like it could be the right spot going forward. And if he does really fit in there, that'll allow for a clearer ruck hierarchy, and they got some help there, too, for a player that you really took a liking to last year in particular. Yeah, mostly because he gave the Caps a lot of trouble, that being Lloyd Meek. You knew Meek was going to get squeezed out at Freo. I saw it coming as soon as Luke Jackson said he wanted to come home. I thought there were other spots that might have made more sense for him in terms of really putting him at the top of the list as the number one guy, but this is a spot where he should be, I would hope at least, in the lineup regularly. Although, I'm certainly not looking forward to facing him, as I said, in like goals for each team this season. I just want to see the Cats really clean up against them on Easter Monday, because they've struggled with them the last couple of years. I'd like to just put the hurt on him pretty convincingly. You haven't really learned to dislike Hawthorne yet, have you? No, because I haven't seen them that good. I didn't like losing to them, certainly. I mean, who does? But I've enjoyed watching them over this past year and watching Sam Mitchell coach. I felt smarter after each game he coached because I felt like I learned something about one of his players or his tactics. So even though I don't expect them to be very good this year, which is at this point kind of by design, I'm interested in watching more of them. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of different younger pieces that we're interested in watching. Among the more established younger players, Jai Newcomb is clearly the central figure in the midfield now, and he was handed a contract extension. And looking in the back third, we have both sung Chen Jath's praises. And what he and the coaching staff really need to figure out is how to manage his time, because he would start off games so strongly, and then his impact would diminish In the second half and you'd really see that effect on the team as a whole you know you can think back to the Anzac Sunday game last year against the Swans as just one example of that there were a lot of games where they started super hot and then just kind of ran out of steam just seems like the sign of a young energetic team and one that's favorable to running at high speeds like they are if you're looking at a couple new acquisitions to watch Cam McKenzie the number seven pick in the draft Looked strong, very the chore against Collingwood in their last preseason hit out. And he's probably in for round one. And then Fergus Green interests me as well. And not just for his name, because he shares a name with one of Shrek's kids. No Farkles or Felicias in the AFL list, sadly. But Fergus Green has been with Box Hill these past two years, the Hawks VFL affiliate. He had been with the Dogs before that. His 450 abilities are probably going to give him a best 23 spot for the year, and I think he's going to be really important in these first couple games because the Hawks will be without someone who, honestly, I could see as a Coleman contender otherwise. Yeah, Mitch Lewis, um, I actually was trying to think of like a sneaky pick for the Coleman, but if he's going to be missing the first couple rounds, at least with a injury, probably really hurts his chances, but... I feel like this is the sort of team where you can have one guy bag four or five goals pretty regularly, and perhaps considering where they would be as a team, likely towards the bottom of the ladder, then they get to the point where they're just trying to funnel a few more shots to that one guy. Although, I don't know if Sam Mitchell would necessarily go down that path, but maybe the players would, you know, want to support one of their guys, get him that medal. So, that's just, I like the way Lewis plays. I like their forward group in general. In terms of set shot kicking, I see guys there that you can generally count on to handle business from a reasonable distance. I don't know if they have a ton of wow factor or guys who can score a lot from open play, but I see guys who can convert their set shots for sure. Lewis definitely has showcased that open play ability. Who do you end up going with for your Coleman pick? I was thinking about a couple of different guys. I know you had gone Jeremy Cameron, I thought about him, I guess I'll go Peter Wright? Another player on what we think will be, you know, a, a bottom thirteen that ought to get a lot of shots, so I think that's a pretty sensible pick there. Also worth noting on the injury front for Hawthorne that Harry Morrison has a bit of a hamstring concern, but as of the title recording, he seems likely to play around one. Who's your pick for a guy to watch on this team, though? I like Lockie Bramble last year, and I want to see more of him here in 2023, but I'm surprised to not see him further entrenched in best 23 talks because he's another one of those guys that I noticed for starting play really well from the back third. And you've got some decent interceptors back there, obviously. Captain James Sisley will lead the way in that regard. But I like Bramble's ground level work as well. And also for sleepers, I just like looking at players on the fringe of selection, and he's certainly that. And I think your sleeper is in a similar boat looking a bit further up the ground. Although I think with that Lewis injury, Sam Butler's odds of being in the lineup more are better, but he seems to be a guy who could end up, considering that he's only 20, being a major goal scorer for this team for a really long time. We'll see how much he plays like his brother, Dan. It'll be interesting to draw the comparisons between the two of them as Sam's career emerges. You've got a couple siblings of AFL-listed players on this Hawthorne team now because you've also got Caleb Sarong's brother, Jai, who we also liked in his time last year. Bramble is a pretty solid pick, though, all things considered. Thank you. I think he's like the exact type of guy that we're looking for when doing this which I hope you guys can start to understand you you guys being the listeners start to understand the sort of stuff that we're looking for when we're doing these I kind of think back to how Jai Newcomb came out of nowhere last year I could start seeing it in 2021 but you know we weren't watching Hawthorne that closely then where I'm thinking of like guys who are doing that sort of stuff that could become major impact players I know the other one that we've talked about a lot is, you know, finding like that next Nathan O'Driscoll. Also, I'm just hoping that Brian Myers friend, James Warble, can have a more consistent year. I just played Warble. For those of you that aren't familiar, you know, it's the footy version of Wordle, which seems to have been updated with this year's rosters and jersey numbers, I think. I'm gonna give that one last check here. Let me make sure that's all updated. Yeah, it is. Awesome. Good. Appreciate the people who Started this game, try to find here real quick. It doesn't seem to have the creator readily available on the website, but props to them. I'm glad that whoever did it has stuck with it. So, yeah, appreciate that. Obviously, the Hawks have a few alternate site games this year because they've got their games at Utah Stadium. They have four on the docket for this year, their normal amount, and it starts pretty early. Round three, they've got a Tasmanian tussle against the Hobart tenants in North. They also host Adelaide for Anzac Sunday, as we mentioned last time, in round six. They host the Eagles round 10 and the Bulldogs round 22, another Bulldogs trip to Launceston there. Strange that they're kind of front-loaded this year when I usually see them more in the back half of the season. Maybe there's been some complaints about Tasmania weather there. Other interesting site is in the... Gather- when they're playing at Norwood Oval, classic sandful venue, they got the Giants there. That's one of two games at Norwood in the Gather round. Norwood Oval, by the way, has a capacity of 15,000 currently. Record attendance there is just a touch over 20,000. And it looks like they've also played some baseball there. I think that was the former home of the team that's now, again, the Adelaide Giants. I think the Adelaide Bite is a hysterical name. It's a very minor league-sounding name. You know, we actually know a guy that did some ABL broadcasting. Yeah. Oh, by the way, it seems like Aaron Whitefield, who is one of the few recognizable names on the Australian WBC team, has played for them. Double ups this year for Hawthorne? Not Geelong, which is still just strange. For the second year in a row, not Geelong. But they've got Frio, Greater Western Sydney, Melbourne, North, St. Kilda, and the Bulldogs. Three finalists, three non-finalists. Of course, you got to have the two games against North, one in Tasmania. This is, it's all right. This is about but you know, between the 10th and 13th toughest schedule, depending on what metric you grade it out on. Although, I think of those three non-finalist teams, considering how far we believe the Saints are going to fall, that this is actually kind of a... I don't even know the way to describe it, like a polarized schedule where like there are three teams that they see twice that could be really fucking good and three that just could be really fucking bad. Like a sort of bimodal, I guess, if you're looking at the distribution, but it's like there could be a lot at the top and a lot at the bottom instead of kind of like more evenly distributed or a bell curve. Is that the sort of thing you're thinking of? Yeah. Um. And I'm not usually a math guy. Yeah, It's like the opposite of a bell curve, but um, the three teams that we look at that they double up against the look like final teams need to clean up against them, especially the Bulldogs considering what we had just said about their schedule. We're going to be taking a short break to help pay the bills, as little as it currently helps pay the bills, but you can change that with your support. So stick around and we'll be back with three more teams to preview on the other side. I would imagine if you're listening to this, you also listened to our first preview of this three-part series, which would mean you probably already know where to find us. But in case this is your first time, let's just throw it out there again. We are on Twitter collectively, at Americans Footy. I am on Twitter, at CastleMedia, with a K. I am on Twitter, at BenjaminHK01. Ethan's cat, Brian Harambe, our third host and mascot, all in one, is on Instagram, a cat named Brian. We're also on YouTube at Americans Footy. We should start posting YouTube shorts. Like, you know, I'm very morally opposed to TikTok because not even just the Chinese surveillance stuff, but just that it's a bitch version of Vine. But I think we should do, like, you know, TikTok-style videos where we don't even do anything. We just, like, point at something and nod. Just, like, point at Liam Ryan's 2019 mark of the year and nod. Just point and nod. Right on. I'll get on editing that. And I'll also get on spinning the wheel for our next team to break down. We're halfway through things now, between this episode and last. So we're going to start the second half with a team that had a terrible second half last year. Ooh, I think I know who this is. Is this the team that accidentally uploaded audio of their own coaches talking when they burned some game footage to a Central League database and maybe could have given away some info on what they thought of certain players and matchups as a result. I guess that would be the one, although it sounds like nothing that significant was in there nonetheless. I, I just find it funny. It's like reverse Spygate. Or, you know what I prefer to Spygate was Wakily. This was an old Wake Forest staffer who leaked their game plans, is that correct? College football scandal from, was this about a decade ago now? No, it was just from 2016, so not quite a full decade, but feels older. This was when Lamar Jackson was at Louisville then. Like a former Wake Forest staffer passed on game plan stuff to, yeah, Louisville. I I thought it involved Virginia Tech. I got to read more about this later, but now is not the time for that. Now is the time to talk about how I think the Saints are going to be terrible this year. I mean, they pretty much added nothing, and two of their best players that weren't showing many signs of age, other than getting hurt more, retired. It's a shame that Patty Ryder couldn't really go out on his terms, make it back for the end of the season. He's actually now signed on as a director of indigenous player development at his original club, Essendon. So good to see him stay involved with the game. And then... We obviously didn't see Dan Hanabree in his prime either, but we definitely gained some appreciation for him. And I went back and saw some of his footage with the Swans, and yeah, I can understand the kind of impact he had back in their their 2012 flag team and through the first part of the 2010s with them. For all the things the Saints did wrong to end the season, they sent him off right. Duck. So yeah, we both think they're going to suck this year. We thought they were going to suck last year. At first, we were wrong. Then we were pretty right. Then when I thought they were actually kind of good, it turned out, no, no, they actually do suck. And it's just, I was very rarely right about them. I'm going to do the tipping challenge this year on the AFL website and we'll see if I can actually get a read on them or if there's a team that you know does that this year where I'm just like wrong about them every week one way or the other. Again, what we think really drove Kilda's success in the first part of the season was that. Rowan Marshall and Patty Ryder were both healthy, and so you could split them between Ruck and fifty to support Max King. That's absent this year for multiple reasons. I mean, Marshall is the Ruckman for the first time in four years, and his support for the first part of the season is also gone. I mean, this injury list is just nasty. And even if it wasn't, I didn't think they'd be very good. Like, again, what did they do to help themselves? I mean, they picked up Liam Stalker in the supplemental selection period, and Carlton fans seem to think he was amazing at first. I mean, they brought in Zane Cordy after he'd been delisted by the Bulldogs, and I mean, he'll be important as a taller Leon because look at who they're not going to have. I mean, we alluded to it already. Let's start with Max King being out for probably the first six rounds, if not more, after there was an accident at training where he buffed up his shoulder. I guess we can only have one king playing at a time in this league. I mean, it's not like a Mackay level thing, but damn, are twins cursed in the AFL? There's some sort of joke here about the Minnesota Twins and not winning playoff games, especially against the Yankees. Okay, uh, the difference I, is, I can't put the pieces together right now. But here's what the joke is. The Minnesota Twins have doubled the championships since St. Kilda Let's just go down the line with more of this injury haul. Jack, 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 Jack Hayes has a fractured metatarsal and is out for two months. Just a shame to see that he can't get back right away after he injured his ACL early last year. Broke out with a three-goal debut against Collingwood, and then five weeks later, ruptured his ACL. So who's the next man up? Um, Not Matthew Allison. He has a fracture in his foot. He's out for five months. Then he got Jack Billings with a two-month timeline for a leg injury. Pick number 35, Ali Houghton is out till the midseason with a back problem. We know that Zach Jones has been ruled out round one with an Achilles injury. I'm not sure how much more time he has left with how fragile he is at this point, and that's disappointing, because I liked both Zach Jones and his now-retired brother Nathan from the D's, and then two of the players that impressed us the most last year for the Saints, week in and week out, especially toward the end of the season, are questionable for round one. Those being Tim Membry with a knee injury and Marcus Windhager who broke one of his metacarpals. My thing with Membry though, you know, he seemed to be a goal assist machine and just play really well off of the guys around him and I think there's less for him to play around. I mean, with King out, he's going to need to be a more central target to begin with between King and not having the Ryder and Marshall duo splitting time at forward. And he's already 28. As much as I'm mainly going to be down on the Saints. I will say there are some pieces here that could be the part of a young foundation if the club knows how to actually build them up and add the supporting pieces needed, not just Windhager, but Mitch Owens. Owens has gotten more and more aggressive in the air over the summer, and I really like that part of his game because his ground game was already established. He plays a little bit bigger than he is as well. He's willing to take on... Bigger defenders. And I mean, he is 6'3, 191 centimeters, but he plays a bit bigger than his size. And that's going to be important with Max King out. And then also their first pick this year, Matthias Philippo has had a very good summer as well. And you're still waiting for Nazia Wanganin Miller to hit his stride. So look, there are some guys here that could be the part of a promising future, but are they in it for you know? Waiting for those guys to build up. I don't think this is what Ross Lyon signed on for when he came back. And also, did they really think they were in the position to contend now? There's just a lot of big picture stuff with this club that I don't understand. Where if if we were looking at Richmond with these young pieces, we'd be super high on them. Because of their track record of development. Oh, exactly. Or if Hawthorne had some of these young pieces, it would be like, alright, you know, in a couple of years, these guys are going to be really fucking good instead just sit here looking at it like i'm just not impressed i think this team's gonna be really bad that said the young talent could help them win a couple more games than i had expected you know maybe they get to like seven eight wins best case scenario would probably be like if everything hits and everyone heals up from injuries and everyone stays healthy you're looking at what 12, 13 wins and kind of being at the same spot as last year when it's all said and done. Maybe if the chips fall right, slipping into that 8th spot, but I don't think that's likely. I see them more likely at the spoon than I do at 8th. Yeah, I think the more I look at it, the more I think they're probably not wooden spoon, I think they're more just like going to be stuck around 15. Which, considering where they are in their competitive cycle, that's a very bad place to be. They do have a couple of Other pieces that I'm kind of interested in, you know, defensively, mostly older group. That's where I think Hunter Clark, who's only 23, could really settle in and impress. He was injured for most of last year, played just eight games. So I'm looking for a bounce back campaign from him. And if their defense plays up to the level that they're actually a decently competitive unit, he's going to have a lot to do with that. So Clark is your sleeper. Minus someone who has yet to play an AFL game and actually has only been at the club for about a month at this point. And this is really because of the injury run they've had. It's Anthony Caminiti. I had my eye on him a bit before the preseason outing against Essendon. And I think he's probably less of a sleeper now because of how well he showed then. A very strong mark already. And again, between... With or without Max King's injury, actually, just tall forward depth is a necessity for the Saints, and at just 19, Kevin and has the potential to be a long-term solution for this group. Without ripping on St. Kilda much more, when things do go south for them, I've started to notice in the last few years, you know, there are some programs, some clubs, some organizations that just understand winning and some that don't. And unless they prove otherwise, I think they're one of those ones that they just don't get it. You know, I don't want to compare them to something as directionless as the Colorado Rockies, but Ooh, I was trying to think of a good comparison earlier. I mean, the Rockies are kind of like their own special zone of incompetence. I mean, that that's from ownership. Doubt is the difference, but I just, unless I really see the saints do something special, I'm not going to believe it. But now that I've looked at their list a little closer, even with some injuries, I could see them at least being better than Wooden Spoon, but if they have really horrible Saints luck and all these injuries, it, it might be a pretty ugly year, and if it is, don't say we didn't warn you. That said, their schedule is decently friendly, only doubling up against two finalists and one top six. Their schedule, depending on how you measure it, is somewhere between the 11th to 14th toughest, so a little bit lower than their placements on the ladder last year they double up with brisbane carlton gold coast hawthorne north and richmond so that's i think it kind of averages out to be about where the numbers say because even if carlton and gold coast improve you think hawthorne slides back i think it's a pretty middle of the pack schedule and i think doubling up with the Suns, I think those might be two of the most important games of Gold Coast season that could determine if they can finally get that first Finals bit. Interesting to see Kilda doubling up against both of the Queensland teams, and they will be making two trips to Queensland. They don't have either of those at alternate sites. They've dropped their Cairns game, which is good for footy. It's not good from a standpoint of I love chaos and love sports in bad weather as long as I'm not personally attending them in said bad weather. Like, watching... Who was it, a fusion? I think it was NC State in Notre Dame. Yeah, it was in 2016. It was 10 to 3. It was awful. The field was like flooded. It was, they were kind of like on the outskirts of a hurricane. And the start of the second half was delayed by lightning. See, that's football weather. Yeah, it's just, it's not fun to watch, though. I will say this their schedule doesn't have any really awful stretch, although the first seven weeks are difficult with the exception of Essendon depending on what version of the sun shows up could be pretty nasty seven of their first eight games are within Victoria the only exception being the which is against Collingwood they then follow that up with Carlton and Port Adelaide I should note also that that Collingwood game is really the only place that you'll be seeing St. Kilda in you know a less usual site for a matchup no alternate sites for them this year which is a shame, especially as a team that doesn't get, like, amazing attendance numbers. I'm surprised they don't get sent out a little lower. Yeah, looking at the the worst stretches for them, coming out of the bye routes 13 through 15, they go to the SCG to play the Swans, the road team against Richmond in Melbourne, and then they host the Lions. They had a couple good battles with them last year. They would have been better had they not suffered injuries during them. I think they ended up being down two rotations at one point in one of those. The final four weeks of the season are pretty difficult as well. Carlton, Richmond, and Geelong, those are all at Marvel. And they are the home team for all those games, if that's of any significance. Will Dimas still complain about having to play at Marvel? Since they're not the home team, probably less so. And then round 24 at the Gabba. So it's it's not an easy stretch. I think that would be the, the huffest part of their schedule altogether. But there's no, like you know, six-week gauntlet or whatever. So that's something on their side. You know, their most difficult games are generally broken up. All right, uh, who's next? We got two more for this episode. I hope, I guess we've only had one finalist so far out of these four. So I would imagine we're in for something a little bit better. I mean, we're definitely in for something better. How about the Swans? Ooh, all right. The team that you dislike the most at this point? Yeah, as I've said before, there's something about just, like, the perception of the city of Sydney. Is there, like, a pretentiousness in there? I don't think so. I think it's just, it's the city that Americans think of when they think of Australia. And the couple of losses to them with Tom Papley and then... Buddy Stausen, I mean, the grand final made up for a lot of that, but, oh yeah, that that 2021 game against them, I believe that was in Sydney, I think it was like a two-point win, two or I think four, either way, it was bad, it was badly officiated, and it just, it was a two-point loss, and I guess they had it coming from their luck against Brisbane and not getting calls to go against them there, but yeah, I mean, I can get why Papley is so aggravating, He's a guy that if he's on your team, you love him. If you're going against him, you hate him. It's that fun German term, Bachfeifengesicht, or however you pronounce it. A face badly in need of a fist. Not advocating violence, but if there were any Swans player that I would expect someone to get violent against, it would be Tom Papley. Uh, Peter Laddams. I think Laddams would run away before anybody got violent with him. I think he's too cowardly. Yeah, Laddams likes to uh, start shit and then not really he's he's really finishing i he's a track star i am not a peter Laddams fan in case you couldn't pick that up i mean he he's another one where it's like fun to watch him when he's at his best i remember him standing out in 2020 for port adelaide against richmond because that was i think the game that really brought us back into the sport more than any other for me at least it was that game but yeah Laddams is just a pain in the ass and he doesn't know when to quit and we're going to be seeing some Adams right away because we're not going to be seeing Tom Hickey for round one. He's been ruled out as well as Ryan Clark and Robbie Fox. Clark has a hamstring injury for Fox and Hickey. It's their calves. And Robbie Fox was a real pleasant highlight last year. You know, a mature rookie list player who came up in really big spots in the back third forum. Look, this is a team that had a ton of success last year. Normally, a team that loses in a championship has some major changes that need to be made, or at least some sort of glaring weakness, whereas they really didn't. They just got their asses kicked by a team playing their absolute best. I mean, the McCartans played pretty poorly in that game, and I mean, Tom had turnovers that led to the first two goals of the second half, and I think those were what really ended the game, and Buddy kind of didn't show up at all. Yeah, he did not, but he's got another year in him. Let's see how far up the goal is he ends up getting. He's already passed Gary Ablett Sr. But but this team, honestly, isn't about him. It's about youth. This is a young, ultra-talented, dynamic Fun group with so many guys who could be Brownlow winners. I mean, there are there are two that really stand out in Chad Warner and Errol Golden, and who people are going fucking nuts over his preseason performance. I mean, it is preseason, but it was against a somewhat complete Carlton midfield, as in terms of what we're going to see from them round one. And Golden was just very in control. He's one of those players that I can really see as a future captain for the Swans. uh, Never getting too high or low kind of guy, whereas Chad Warner might be a bit easier to to upset a little bit. But both of them are going to have their decade plus if they stay healthy to really make the league theirs. We'll see how long the McCartan brothers stick around, particularly Patty, because he's a little older and he's got that concussion history. He did have one last year, but I was just glad to see him back on the Oval, it's a great story that he was able to get back and be as important as he was. And if there's a concern over age in the in the back ranks, it would be more so of Dane Rampey, who I know you gained a lot of appreciation for. He was that guy who won them a lot of tight games by making some big plays in the fourth quarter. This is a team that, for the most part, they've shown expertise in tight games. It seemed like most of their losses... They either just didn't show up or, you know, got cleanly beat by a couple of goals. And there weren't many losses to speak of, obviously. I mean, they went. I mean, other than the the nine point loss to Essendon. Yeah. And that was just a freak game with so many respects back in round 16. And then they didn't lose again until Geelong handed them their asses and their entire lower body on a plate and said, fucking eat. To borrow the term that I've heard in a college basketball podcast I've been listening to lately, they red-bottomed them. Yeah, that would do it. But, like, you look at some of the games they won, whether it was against the Ds or against the Tigers, against the Ds both times, where they just, they had guys that made winning plays. And there were times when even if they were down a couple goals, someone would make that play, and you'd know, all right, they've got and. I just don't think there's much that they need to change, even though my prediction for them is to lose in the grand final again this year. You have them losing to the Lions. I have the Lions beating Melbourne, and I'll just say that now. But unless the Swans establish some really bad long-term trends for, you know, finals losses or something, I don't think there's going to be any need for any drastic changes anytime soon. I mean, they do need a long-term Key forward solution and hopefully Logan McDonald can grow into that because, I mean, it's impossible to replace Buddy and Sam Reed's mop up work might not be around for much longer either. Just a couple other injury concerns. We talked at length about Pathley, but didn't mention that he has a rib injury. He could be ready, as could Joel Amarty if his hamstring heals up. Amarty's another one who I expect to get that tall forward time. To see, you know, if he can stick there long term, he's gotten ruck and key forward work in the past, but hasn't been able to get consistent time. Callum Mills is also likely to play. Looks like his finger will heal up in time. Amarty and Reed are both great examples of the depth that this club has, whereas you look at the Bulldogs, where past like their top 15 or so guys, it's pretty rough you look at melbourne where they had you know kind of a lot of interchangeable mad last year look at wita brown and the swans it was like they had more guys that could jump in and get shit done and that's one of the reasons i think this team is so good i have really struggled to find like anybody that i could think of as a young sleeper for them this might be the hardest one because just about everyone is kind of established at this point i I was a little early on the Nick Blakey train compared to most people last year. I was really high on James Robot. I'm just making winning plays. Man, I am I mean, he is just one of those just gutsy players off of ruck contests. So important in clearance work all over the ground. And he's another one of those younger pieces that makes me really think that this team could stick around for a while. So who's your sleeper? I got Hayden McLean, and I hadn't thought about him for most of last season until he showed up again in the grand final. Yeah, he hadn't played since round eight before that. And, you know, with the injury concerns to Rucks to start the season and, you know, me not being sure about how Amarty fits into things, it could definitely provide him a pathway into the top 22 or 23. He kicked two goals versus Carlton in the preseason outing as well. So good signs from him going into the home and away campaign. I had considered Harry Cunningham for this sleeper spot, but Ryan Clark's injury brought Cunningham into greater focus as a potential round one inclusion. Who did you go for, Ethan? I'm going for Angus Sheldrick, who played in round one and then was the unused injury sub in round two, just because I think he's going to get some chances with a team looking for a little bit more at forward, kind of looking long-term. This is a guy who was a first-round pick. He is on the smaller side, only about 5'10", so not quite, you know, the body type that you're looking for to replace Buddy, but I think this is a team that, because of how quick they are, can make things work with more small forwards and maybe just overwhelm teams with speed rather than worry about size, and then instead of looking to take contested marks, he just... Yet, guys in the open. Now, the one thing that I think will work against the Swans this season is that their schedule is an absolute bitch. They have the toughest schedule in the league by multiple metrics. I would say Geelong has the next toughest. I think this is the toughest schedule. Their double-ups are Fremantle, Geelong, Gold Coast, GWS, Melbourne, Richmond. Whereas, so those are five finals contenders, and who knows if the Giants will give them a competitive game, but holy cow. I'd like to think the Giants will play with them at least once. I hope at least it looks more like the first Sydney Derby than the second, because the second was awful. But um, yeah, this is not going to be easier. They do kind of open on a semi-comfortable note. Suns away. Hawks home, and then they really get into it. You've got at Melbourne, Port Adelaide at home, Richmond in the gather round, then at Geelong. I am very glad that they've got Richmond and Geelong twice. Then you've got the Sydney Derby, then at Collingwood, home against Rio, and then rounds 16 through 19, you've got a pretty nasty stretch of Geelong at home, at Richmond, Bulldogs at home, at Frio, and then... They travel to Essendon round 20, but Essendon's played them tough in recent years. That's also where I think doubling up against Gold Coast isn't easy because the Suns have played them really well for the last couple of seasons. This is not going to be an easy schedule. I'll back them in to have a home final, so top six, but I don't know where in that top six they'll be. I think this is still one of the best teams in the competition top to bottom. I will say rounds 20 to 23 can be pretty forgiving. Starting with that Essendon game, then they play at GWS, host the Suns, and then play at Adelaide. So, even with 3 out of 4 on the road, that could be a more forgiving stretch, but they're going to be tested week in and week out. I'm sure we'll be talking about them a ton. I really look forward to seeing what they have in store this season. As much as I may enjoy them losing... I think it's going to be a fun team to watch where I'm going to be able to get a lot more out of watching them this season than just, yeah, they're really good. Only venue note for the Swans is that they do make the trip to Geelong this year. That's round six. That's the Cats' first home game. So big ceremony in line for that one for obvious reasons. And I want to see Joel Selwood and Levi Applet unveiling the flag. Don't forget Selwood is also leading the March in from Federation Square next Friday. Look, give the man everything he wants. By the way, Selwood is now in an off-field role at Geelong to go along with the stuff he's done with the Melbourne Storm. He's going to be doing some things outside of the day-to-day football program, working with partners, stakeholders, and members. So this might just be kind of like a casual thing while he's busy, you know, having kids. But at least things like, you know... Maybe he's the guy that gets on the call with the, you know, it was like, hey, you want to renew your membership for next year? I'm Joel Selwood. All right. Is it going to be another finalist? Holy cow, it's not. North? It is North. So, I mean, one of the teams that played the Swans tough last year, believe it or not, that was all the way back in round four, where... The Swans had to solidify things late to come home by 11 points. That was one of North's highlights. There weren't many others. Look, they're not going to be as bad as they were last year. I still have them as the spoon. I think the Eagles are more likely. I think I think Hawthorne is more likely than the Eagles. I think bringing in Griffin, Logue and Darcy Tucker will help a bit. I mean, I'm not sure where Tucker sits if he's in the 23 right now. I think with the injury to Ben McKay, he will certainly be more of a factor in the back. Oh yeah, Ben McKay's hurt again. And what timing considering we're a month out from North playing Carlton. Harry Sheezel looks really fucking good already and I'm super excited to watch more of him. I hope he and Todd Goldstein both had a great forum. They also bring in William Shields. That's I think just more of a leadership Thing I'm I'm not sure how much more he has to offer in terms of playing. He was on the outs at Hawthorne to begin with, and this is him reunited with Clarkson. I wouldn't be shocked if that deal maybe involved a transition to coaching after a year or two, like we see with some players at the end of their playing days. But yeah, um, Ben McKay has a bone stress issue in his right foot and is out for quote the early rounds. Watch him come back in round five after Good Friday. There is only one Makai, and they only play Carlton once. Their schedule is pretty friendly. I mean, it's as friendly as it can be. They only double up against one finalist. I guess that's what happens when you take the spoon. It's Essendon, Gold Coast, Hawthorne, Melbourne, St. Kilda, and West Coast. The possibility is there for, you know, some upward mobility. I'm just not sure how much they'll be able to seize it. And we could really see those Hawthorne, St. Kilda, and West Coast double-ups as factors in who ends up getting the chance to draft Harley Reid. I don't think this team is going to be wide as bad, just with some of the guys they've brought in. I mean, I, d- I don't think they're going to be like a 50-something percent team like they were last year. I forget if it was Gary Lyon or David King. By the way, I think of all the main Fox footy analysts, I typically agree with King the most, but there was discussion after they had lead Melbourne at Marvel. This was in round 10. This was the last of Melbourne's run of wins to begin the season, where it was like, we're patting them on the back for competing for a half before getting blown out. And I think they're going to be more competitive this year. I think with some of the renewed energy that's going to be around them with some of the change of faces, change of culture, change of voices, it's going to be... A little bit better this is still probably not that good of a team but i think there's something there jai simpkin whose biceps look absolutely insane right now that's- could end up having some of the best possession numbers in the entire league could be a monster in fantasy that's co-captain jai simpkin to you along with luke mcdonald who got the share of duties at captain's day today interesting to see which co-captains get the honors there for Richmond, it was Toby Nancurvis. For Brisbane, it was Lockie Neal over Harris Andrews. The Eagles didn't even send their captain or vice captain because Luke Shue is still rehabbing. They sent Liam Duggan. Hope you had fun, Liam. My concern with the Alistair Clarkson hire is the same as it was before. You know, when you have a coach that's accustomed to success, do they have the patience and energy and attention to detail to do all the things that you need to do to build things from the ground up. And as some coaches want to take on that challenge, but for some, it's like you get so accustomed to success that it's hard to be shitty. And again, he hasn't worked a club from the bottom in 18 years. See, and that's where I like like the situation Adam Kingsley is in at GWS. He's the only new first-time head coach of the AFL this season. The three other hires are all retreads. See, I think Adam Kingsley is the sort of guy who, when you're down by 40 in the final minutes of a game and a guy makes a good play to save a ball from going out of bounds on the full, he'll be there to pat you on the back and hype you up for that. Whereas I don't know if the other new coaching hires have that sort of energy and motivation. If they do, awesome. And then you've got guys who not only have that motivation, but have the proven record of success. But that's that's hard to guarantee. The other thing that isn't helping North is that there are a number of players whose injury timelines are unclear. You mentioned Darcy Tucker as one of the new guys in. I was thinking maybe he'd have a shot to get in with questions of the back half, considering Makai being out, but he's got a knee issue. And Cam Zerhar who's probably their most exciting player game in and game out, had a calf strain in the preseason hit out against the Bulldogs. So they're both unlikely. And then questions for a bunch of others for round one. Aiden Core has a calf injury. So does Curtis Taylor. Aaron Hall is rehabbing something with his Achilles. They're all questionable. We do know that Callum Coleman-Jones has a partial plantar fascia tear, and so he will have a delayed start to the season. And we don't know what George Wardlaw's timeline is yet. The fourth pick this past November, he's had a hamstring problem throughout the summer, and I'm not sure when he's going to be up into full game form. But hopefully that just gives Clarkson and staff more of a green light to try out more players in different spots, like I've said with Hawthorne and like I hope for West Coast. And Colin Jones was providing Ruck support, among other things. And, you know, that's a spot where I do like where they are with Still having Todd Goldstein. Love that he's sticking things out the way he is. And hopefully Tristan Jerry can stay on the Oval a bit more this year. Because I like what I saw from him in the early going. I know we talk a lot about Ruckman stuff. But when they were able to operate with three of them, it made them at least, you know, maybe not good, but a challenge to match up with. Also, I just find the whole Ruck carousel around the league fascinating fascinating. Reminds me of an ice hockey goalie carousel, and North have been stable the past bit with that, and so good for them on that front. Where does your sleeper lie for North? Because, I mean, they've got so much talent that I don't think a lot of people have really paid attention to yet. Judging by what you had said, I'm surprised you described what they have as talent. But I mean, potential. potentials. The I'm way. going with a guy who got in one game, was a great story, had one disposal, and then left injured. Oh, Miller Bergman, grew up a Kangaroos fan. That was that was tough to see. Yes, his dad played for the club. I believe he is Miles Bergman's brother. Only found like one thing saying it. This is a team with very little locked in defensively. Lowe is listed as a defender. And I mean, Ben McKay, when he's healthy, great. When is he healthy? Aaron Hall gains a lot of ground. I mean, what else does he do? Because he's bringing the ball out from after behinds. He broke a record for meters gained last year, and it did absolutely fucking nothing. Again, there are functional meters gained, and then there are non-functional meters gained. He is the king of non-functional ground gaining. I mean, Aiden Bonner, there's not a lot that makes me super excited. Like, if I was a North fan, I wouldn't be like, Hell yeah, Aiden Bonner's going to play. So, Bergman has a chance just as a young guy and a fresh face, plus as a compelling story to be something there and maybe mean something to the fans in a club where there hasn't been a ton of that. Like, just seeing last year, how much this fan base needs something to hold on to. I mean, look at how enraptured they were once Clarkson came on. You know, Ben Cunnington was their rallying cry last year and he hardly played. Just, you know, to have a guy that is really north through and through for a team that doesn't usually have that identity, you don't have the photos of the players of little kids wearing north gear, I think. No, you have a photo of a draftee wearing a north jumper to bed and then him asking for a trade home by the next year. Yeah. So that's another area where Bergman could be really helpful. Who's yours? I've got Quinn Perez, who had some time last year, was the sub on a couple occasions, fitting in a halfback midfield spot. I want to see how his roles really defined under Clarkson compared to how it was under whatever David Noble did and what Lee Adams has done as well. I'm glad that Patch is able to stay on with the club because I think he got him playing the right way near the end of things and was at least a good motivator. So Perez was drafted as a defender, but he got considerable midfield time last year. And look, they need a non-Ben McKay, a non-Griffin Logue answer in one-on-one defensive 50 matchups because I want to see Logue continuing in that role that he had at Freo, where he's able to swing between the 50s on a somewhat regular basis. So if Perez is able to stick in the back six and really get time working with one-on-one matchups. I think there can be some good from him there. In terms of their schedule, I mean, nothing's going to come easy for North this year, especially because they don't get to play against North. Look, they were able to play against pretty much nobody in round two last year. That's not going to happen again. We think, fingers fucking crossed it doesn't happen in round one. For the Eagles' sake more than anybody else, it's totally possible that either North or West Coast are at the top of the ladder after round one just cuz they absolutely beat the other up. Yeah, which would be really fun for that week of like memes and shit posts on Instagram. So, we was top of the ladder. <laughs> as much as I want to see the caps on top of the ladder, I would totally be okay with that. <laughs> North's toughest stretch of the schedule looks to be before the bye. They've got a rough run of things in 7 of 8 rounds between rounds 4 and 11. Round four is the Good Friday game against Carlton, where we likely won't see the Mackays matching up against each other because, again, There is only one Mackay. Whenever the Australian version of the CIA is, will probably come after us for exposing their secret. It is a privilege to provide you with the truth. Become ungovernable. After that, they have quite the venue for the Gather Round against the Brisbane Lions. Yes, this will be out at Mount Barker, Summit Oval. This in the Adelaide Hills, east of the city. It'll be the first and only game played there, at least for this season. We'll see if they return there if the Gather Round returns to South Australia. And I imagine it will once it kind of runs through the other states. But they've got the Lions in Mount Barker. Then they go to Gold Coast. They're the technical road team against the D's Round 7. St. Kilda should be a bit of a let-off round eight. I hope it is. I hope for North's sake that's competitive. From there, those next three, though, hosting Port Adelaide and Sydney, and then technically away against Collingwood. So not a fun stretch there. And if you see their percentage dip down to those levels close to what it was last year, I mean, don't necessarily be surprised, but I don't think it's going to stay there the whole way this season. Now, I will note that Port Adelaide game is also another alternate side affair. Yes, that'll be part of the Tasmania experience. That game is at Blundstone Arena. Also, round three against Hawthorne, the Tasmanian tussle, that'll be in Launceston. They'll also be at Blundstone to take on the Giants, round 13, the Demons in round 21, and the Suns in round 24. Getting used to that whole uh idea of round 24 is... It's gonna take a while. Yeah but we're already used to a Tasmanian game in the final round. It's just been Hawthorne the past couple of years. And it's been, you know, 23, not 24. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're going to stick at 23 rounds for long. I think they're going to go to 24 games soon. Just the odd number of games just doesn't sit right. Like I'm expecting the NFL to go to 18 soon. But since you have that neutral game and the gather round, it does work. Here's a question. Since their schedule is a bit front-loaded, if you've got a team like North that you don't expect to be at the top of the ladder, would you rather their schedule be front-loaded and then in the back half of the season you kind of get to watch them play against lesser competition, although those games have lower stakes, or would you rather yeah. you rather have them you know stay in the picture longer, but towards the end of the season in these you know meaningful games that you might get hyped up for, they end up just Kind of getting red-bottomed. Red-bottomed and just, like, fading into the bottom third as a result. Yeah, I mean, they're going to end up I mean, same place. Yes, either way. It's just, I mean, would you rather get excited about them at the start of the season or at the end? I'd want to say the end because I think the start of the season, at least you'd have realistic expectations. And then by the end of things, the coaching staff, the, the off-field department, should at that point be able to figure out, okay, this is what's gonna work going into next year and the fans can be positive about that rather than just being demoralized by the beatdowns at the end of things. The thing is just from my perspective, it's like if there's a game that we know isn't gonna mean much, we're gonna pay less attention to it. And I think most people would. So that's that's the challenge there. So we're through two thirds of the teams now this three part home and away preview. I think things have been going at a pretty nice pace still. It's been good to kind of get more into these sleepers and you know, it'll be interesting going back while I edit this, hearing how we talk about teams that we expect to be higher versus lower on the ladder. I'm looking forward to really saving some of these predictions and our perceptions heading into the season, kind of see the expectation versus reality and trying to really like chart that and map that out because i feel like if there was a bit of a blind spot we had last year it was like not saving direct accounts of like you know in this week we said this or we predicted this and then we were right or we were completely wrong so that's something that i'm gonna try to do more i think that's definitely going to help inform us when we hit august and september when we do the post whether it's you know in the so you didn't crack the eight or the breakdowns as teams bow out of finals. That'll be a good way for us to go back 100% essentially. But essentially now we're going to get off this so that we can start moving toward part three, which should be coming your way in a couple of days time. Again, you can find us on YouTube and Twitter at Americans footy. I'm at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. I'm at Castle Media. Gryan is sleeping on the bed next to me. He's on Instagram at cat named I just posted a video of him playing around on the stairs. It's really good. You should definitely watch it. And I'm not sure where we're going to be in terms of world baseball classic stuff at the time this episode is actually released. So I'm just going to throw out all of the things that are definitely going to happen I can't believe Australia lost 20 to nothing to China, but then put up 30 runs against Japan and made Shohei Otani cry on the field!